Hey, 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 here we are once again with another Bass Edge podcast. The Edge will bring to you this week a jam-packed episode full of knowledge as we look into some late summer successful fishing tactics and peek forward into what lies ahead for fishing this fall. Bass Edgers, welcome to our September edition and enjoy the show presented by KeelGuard, the industry's first do-it-yourself keel protector. Make sure you check them out on the World Wide Web at KeelGuard.com. As always, we have Bass Edge anchorman Aaron Martin, and I'm your co-host Kurt Dove. Aaron, it's hard to believe we're already ready to iron out another broadcast i'm still working on implementing all the tips and tactics we got last month boy kurt i am with you as just when we came out of that august episode thinking that we had tested the outer limits of how much information we could put into one episode here we find ourselves again coming out of the gates in september with another great episode of the edge this time we're sticking with that same theme taking one body of water two separate anglers that fished it at the same time both had great success but approached it in completely separate ways and I'm talking about none other than Forest Wood Cup winner, Jacob Wheeler, and second place finisher, Scott Canterbury. After that, we're going to talk about fall strategies, lake turnover, and how to approach September, the month that kind of leaves everybody scratching their head when they launch that boat. Finally, two listener questions will be chosen and answered. We're going to give away two $25 gift cards to BassTackleDepot.com. Attach your kill switches, strap on those life vests, as we are putting the throttle down. Get away that boy. Good job. Well, I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing. Yet. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. Conditions going to be tough, but we'll catch them. This is, this is a good place. It's all about figuring it out. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Holy cow. You're listening to The Edge, everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios, high above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks. Aaron, I've been away from home for a long time fishing, and I'm, I'm glad to be back in Del Rio, Texas on Lake Amistad. How things been treating you up in the Ozarks this past month? I hear you've been doing some casting out on Bull Shoals lately. Well, I've been on Bull Shoals, but uh, I, I guess I need to further explain, probably not too much in the way of casting, you know. I've got a championship tournament with Central Pro-Am that's coming up in October. Bull Shoals is a highland reservoir, a little bit like Table Rock in the fact that it's just all part of that White River chain, and although I love Bull Shoals, it's just a lake, quite honestly, I haven't spent a tremendous amount of time, so really what I've invested the last couple times that I've been out on it is just kind of doing, Kurt, you know, what we talk a lot here on the edge about is just looking at some maps, taking the boat out, using the electronics. I'm really going and looking, trying to graph areas using that down scan, that side scan, to look at where the fish are currently now or where I anticipate that they are. But then more importantly, of where they're going kind of in that mid-October range of which I'm going to be visiting there. Because, you know, right now, if you go and you fish for where they're at, that's probably not where they're going to be in October. So it's a a little bit of piecing that puzzle together and just trying to figure out and put some theories together, I I guess, is the best way to explain it. How about you? I guess you've had quite the tour up north. Uh, Most recently, a couple weeks ago, you just got back from Cayuga, I guess, in New York. Right, yeah. Actually, I went up there and did some fun fishing at Dunkirk on Lake Erie. Posted a little pic for everyone on Bass Edge Facebook if they were able to check that out, but had some brute small jaws up there, man. I love those things, you know. Still talking about and trying to use some of those techniques that we learned last month, you know, when we were talking on the podcast. But yeah, then went to Cayuga. Finished pretty good in an open event up there. Not a top 10, but finished 21st place. Interestingly enough, I was able to utilize some patterns that I implemented like Amistad when I'm guiding and fishing out there, and that's flipping grass. You know, Cayuga, a big finger lake up there in, in uh, western New York, has a lot of deep grass. And, you know, I ended up targeting those fish that were in 12 to 14 foot. The grass wasn't necessarily topped out on, on the surface of the water. You know, from zero to four feet, there was no grass. But from that four to 12 or 14 feet, so you had, you know, eight to 10 foot of grass there. And I was able to uh, take that big tungsten weight and put on a, uh, you know, creature bait or a beaver style bait. And imitate a crawfish and flip it up in there. And, you know, I had a couple days where it was lights out. And then there were other days you knew the fish were there, but they weren't biting that good. But I was able to uh, scratch out a limit there the last day and, and come out with a decent finish. And then, fortunately, Aaron, I, you know, I qualified for the Bassmaster Elite Series again next year. So, wow, that, uh, what an accomplishment. I know, obviously, that's something that you're very familiar with. You spent several years out doing that. Uh, you'll have to keep us posted. Regardless, you'll still be a part of the edge and, and look forward to that. Definitely. 
Right. That's kind of one of those things, Kurt, you know, that we spent some time talking about. You hit benchmarks, and you know what? The main thing is you hit the benchmark. But hey, back to your earlier comment was fishing grass. Grass is one of those things that can be extremely intimidating, especially if there's a lot of it. But what kind of grass were you actually targeting up there? I tell you, you know, at, at Cayuga, it was a proliferation of different types of grasses. They have coontail grass, milfoil, eel grass. So, you know, you just don't even some pepper grass and pond weed. So you just don't go down the, the bank or, or, or use your graph and, and side scan like you're doing on bull shoals. You know, I was using my graph and, and the side scan and down scan to find those outside edges of that thick grass. But, um, you know, finding the grass, finding the edges, and then little turns and points were critical for finding the fish, first of all. And then it was it was important of how you attack to try and catch the fish. Fortunately, I, I was able to find a couple areas where they were really biting well on the bottom and uh, utilizing the big tungsten weight and uh, flipping into that grass and letting that three-quarter or one-ounce weight penetrate all the way down to the bottom and then working that bait real slowly until finally a fish would pick it up. But there were some other techniques working as well you know crankbaits over top of the grass and uh, sometimes if there was a little wind and clouds you could catch some fish on spinnerbait over top of the grass as well and if it got super still and slick then you'd have to go to some finesse techniques maybe a weightless stick bait you know like a, a cinco or, or hatch match stick or, or any of those types of uh, really finesse type baits with light weights and uh, sometimes light line too there was some clear water in the lake but also some stained water a lot of different aspects going on but just like we're going to talk in this show and, and we've talked some you know in past shows there is always some different techniques happening on the same bodies of water so wasn't just punching and and flipping to catch those grass fish as i said you know you could get a crankbait and spinnerbait bite out there too and, and there's a lot of people that were able to capitalize and have a lot of fun catching a lot of bass at lake cayuga well, Kurt, you bring up a good point. I mean, when we're talking about bodies of water, I don't care if it's your local city lake or to some of these gigantic reservoirs or rivers that, that we often reference. What is your take on when somebody asks, okay, what, what are they biting on or what you need to do? I'm a firm believer that at any given time, I don't care how tough the conditions are, there is a biting fish somewhere on the body of water. And secondly is that there's not only one way to catch them, but yet confidence kind of still plays into the angler's, you know, approach because if you're not confident in what you're doing, then you're probably not going to catch them. You're 100% correct. Always something different going on. If I go down and I'm fishing deep and I'm not catching fish, you can change your tactic fishing deep. Maybe go from, you know, a power fishing technique to a, a more finesse fishing type technique. But if they're not biting deep, move mid-depth. You know, there's really three three columns, deep column, your mid-depth column, and your shallow water column. And, uh, you know, if you're not getting bit in one, try a couple different techniques. Move depths. Move areas of the lake and uh, try something else because you might get on a bite that happens in the morning from dawn until 10 or 11 o'clock and you're keyed into something that's happened out deep and then maybe some fish move shallow from 11 to to 5 and in order for us to keep moving along with the fish patterns and the fish movements and and their behaviors uh the only way you're going to find that stuff out is to continue to adjust and and try different things but the key is there's there's always something happening on the lake and i agree with you aaron 100 percent. there's fish biting somewhere somebody's going to catch them it might as well be you so you better keep moving around until you are. That's right, and I think that's one of the things that we can stress to new anglers in the sport, but especially our younger anglers, you know, those that are young in age, just getting into it, not to be boxed in, not to be closed-minded, but really to expose yourself to a lot of different things. You hear so many guests that we have on here talk about they have a go-to, you know, a confidence bait or a confidence technique, but yet they spend a lot of time making sure that they know the other disciplines. And, you know, I, I think that's very important for our younger anglers. 100%. You know, young people can learn so much from from, of course, you know, podcasts like The Edge and Bass Edge and, and then, you know, just learning things on their own and taking tips from their elders and, and folks that take them out on the water. But uh, there's definitely seems to be a movement in fishing where there's a lot more young anglers getting involved. You know, you've got the high school fishing is really starting to get pretty popular. We've had college fishing really gain some huge ground over the last four or five years. And uh, there's definitely a movement as far as getting more young anglers involved in 
in bass fishing and teaching and instructing and really pushing them into uh, a direction where they can be successful in bass fishing. Well, for sure, and there is definitely a theme, and I'm hoping, Kurt, I, I really do, I hope this is kind of the movement from my generation and your generation when we grew up. You know, it was always about throwing your rod on your bike or walking down to your stream or something and, and just going out and spending time trying to catch those fish, and what a great way to spend it with family. But, hey, you know what? Speaking of young anglers, we've got one on the line right now. And that is recent Forest Wood Cup champion who is now $500,000 richer, Jacob Wheeler. Fabulous young angler. Let's talk to Jacob and see what he can teach us more and teach other young anglers more about bass fishing and how to catch them at Lake Lanier in the summertime. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam. This is Brian Maloney. Hi, this is Chris Lane, and thanks for listening to Bass Edge Radio. Aaron, as we've been discussing in my eyes, we're seeing some major age demographic changes in the sport of professional bass fishing. This month, we bring to the edge another phenomenal young angler. This fellow was deemed by FLW Magazine in 2011 as the next bass fishing superstar, and maybe he's proven it as the 2012 FLW Forest Wood Cup winner. Man, that's 500000 bucks. That must be sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Willer, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jacob, for sitting down with us today. Sure, thank you guys for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. You know, and Jacob, it was just actually, I guess, a couple of weeks ago that you claimed one of the biggest titles in the sport of bass fishing. And, you know, typically here at Bass Edge, we kind of like to allow the press to run its cycle and get in with you and get all the specifics. But I always like to come back after that media blitz and that media mob scene to really kind of dive off into the specifics and the education and really what was going through your brain that led you to make the decisions that you made. I mean, what has these first couple of weeks after the victory been like for you? They've been unbelievable. You know, it's, it's every day. You know, it's, it's a dream come true. It truthfully is. And and you get up every morning, and I walk in my living room. And I'm like, my cup's still there. I'm like, oh man, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. It really is, and it's just an amazing thing. And um, you know, it's just it's an honor to be able to say that you're the cup champion for the whole year. So, how long does it take to get through all of the social media stuff and and the emails and the phone calls? I mean, you're probably still dealing with those things even a few weeks after the championship. Is that correct oh for sure you know it's crazy it really is there's a lot of emails and you want to get back to everybody a lot of facebook messages that you want to get back to everyone that sent you a message and it's a lot of time on the computer it's awesome to have the support and, and the interest shown um, after this tournament, it's been amazing, and so it's just awesome to have the people that are supporting you and behind you 100%. I know that feels really good. You know, Jacob, last year, obviously, you've got the All-American. You win the BFL All-American, and then, prestigiously, you get the cover of FLW Magazine. But most importantly, you know, they tag you as Bass Fishing's next superstar. Certainly, it's got to play into your mental game and really help boost you up. Do you think that could be what sets you apart this year and has given you the confidence to really jump on tour? in 2012 and have a good year, qualify for the Cup, and then come out and have the confidence that you can go out and win one of the biggest events in professional bass fishing, the FLW Forcewood Cup. Oh, definitely. Confidence is huge. And this sport is just all about momentum. You know, you catch a couple of big fish in a certain day, and all of a sudden you get this positive momentum going, and you can take momentum from each tournament. You win a tournament, you have a good finish at a tournament, and you're just positive all the way through the year. And, and this year started off pretty positive and you know, definitely the nice things that FLW said about me, it gave me confidence. And you can't get too confident, but you know, being a 21-year-old and, and, and going out and fishing against the best in the world on the FLW Tour, you have to be somewhat confident in your own ability. Otherwise, you're ate up out there. You just can't worry about who you're fishing against. You do have to worry about the fish. But um, giving some confidence, definitely momentum is a huge thing. Well, Jacob, you know, a lot of that confidence that you had probably helped you lead to a winning decision that you made at Lake Lanier during the Cup. That was the fish up the river of really a known, deep, spotted bass lake, you know, and a lot of anglers were focusing down lake. I'm curious, really, to what you saw in pre-practice that intrigued you to 
focus the majority of your time up the river in this particular event? Um, you know, this is an ongoing learning experience for me. I mean, the biggest thing I learned this year out there on that Southern Beach Tour was just fish your own strengths. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter if the deep bite's on on Kentucky Lake. Whatever you feel, whatever vibe you're getting, just roll with it. You know, I, I like fishing out deep. But if I'm going to struggle at all or, you know, struggle for five bites, I'd rather be up shallow than be out deep struggling. And so, you know, if I'm out there on Kentucky Lake, you know, on big schools of bass where you can catch them, you know, every cast, I love doing that kind of stuff, catching them cranking, catching them um, throwing a football head, you know, doing that kind of stuff is awesome. But um, what I had really came down in this event was, hey, Jacob, are you going to go out deep and struggle in 30 foot of water to catch five fish and you don't know if they're quality bites or are you going to struggle and try to go shallow? And so that's okay. when I decided to commit shallow in this tournament. I said, okay, I'm going to commit shallow. I'm going to find every little nook and cranny of this lake that has a bass up in the five foot of water shallow or try to anyway. And so, you know, I'm a river rat from where I live here in Indy. Um, you know, fishing the Ohio River, fishing a lot of these, you know, lakes like Monroe and Patuka, we go up the river a lot. And, I mean, it's similar stuff. Um, when I got down there, it was it was very similar. There was a little bit more current. Um, and any time, you know, a river a river will play in any tournament a lot of times in August because of the water temperature, actually, and oxygen levels. Um, you know, there's a lot of new water coming in. It's fresh water. Current's moving. There's a lot of oxygen. There's a lot of bait. And so those fish that are in those lower stretches of that river migrate up into the headwaters, which is what I call it, and really get up there. And um, that's where I live for the summer. Nice. Well, definitely you exploited it very well. Jacob, one question to kind of bring this full circle because the thing that I look at you've mentioned bluegill beds you know playing mm-hmm. a major role in catching some of the bigger largemouth in the tournament you know and, and really by a lot of the anglers clue me in give us the Jacob Wheeler definition of what a bluegill bed is where are you looking what types of strategy are you using to target these and why are you targeting them bluegill will go up there and spawn in August depending on what, what area of the country you are in this is something that I learned at Washita last year I learned the whole understanding of bluegill beds and there was a full moon about five days prior to this tournament so I knew there was going to be a few bluegill up probably spawning i went down there in pre-practice and looked around there i only found like probably two or three bluegill beds um and what these bluegill beds are totally different in different areas of the country in my opinion i feel like they adapt to the conditions on the lakes um you know lake Lanier has a lot of boat traffic tons of boat traffic um you know it's really close to atlanta there and it's probably one of the worst places to be on the water, you know, as far as boat traffic during during the do, weekend. Do they have six Bluegill. lanes running down the middle of the lake like they do? Or two <laughs> down they have more than that, it seems like. I, I, it was a couple of them, I was like, wow. A couple of days, I was like, I should not be out here. It was worse than Lake Erie. <laughs> but, you know, really the, the key to the bluegill beds for me on Lanier, and it is a lot of different places, is finding the pockets that are protected so protected from those big wakes from these big boats, small pockets. I'm not talking about big coves. I'm not talking way back in there from the main lake. They want to be close. They want to be close to that deep water. They want to be just inside of a little nook or pocket. It doesn't even have to be a pocket. It can be a little nook or like a little ditch that comes in off of a cove. Just something that protects them from wave action. They just have to feel secure. And it has to be the right bottom composition. You know, in my opinion, it's more of a darker brown um, if you start looking at these little ditches, is really the key. Is the ditches um, inside these coves have have the majority of the bluegill spawning them? I and once you figure that kind of stuff out, or the small pockets right off of like a river or something, a small pocket right off of a river that only goes back 50 yards is a great example. Or makes a little turn so that way there's not that constant wave action that is crashing up in there and throwing those bluegill on the bank or something. I feel like those are the key ingredients to having uh, you know a couple really good bluegill beds. You know, and in that event. There was there was multiple bluegill beds all over the lake, but the very key, the majority of the bluegill that I found, I ran all over the lake looking for bluegill and um, in bluegill beds. Um, but there's also a key to the size of bluegill. Um, believe it or not, if they're eight inches, nine inches long, there's not a lot of bass that can eat those fish. It uses bluegill, and so I'll go and looking for how many are eatable bluegill over they couldn't eat those probably. I'm not saying a five pounder couldn't go up there and eat that eight nine inch bluegill, but they look for the right size bluegill like uh like we do as far as eating a hot dog or anything else we're looking for the right size meal so, um, <laughs> I mean, it's really that specific i mean i've seen it, it during practice I, I counted bluegill it's on beds i would come back in in, in the tournament i would i'd sit there and i could 
knew how many were small ones were there, just to sort of give me an idea. And about always, about two thirds of those small ones were gone. <laughs> they were they didn't just leave. Trust me. Holy <laughs> cow! And it wasn't somebody catching them and put them on a trout line either. No, it wasn't any of that. <laughs> those bass knew where they were at. They knew what they were looking for, and they they took advantage of it for sure. <laughs> well, now we kind of know where to look for some of these areas and 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 to utilize some of the strategy. What, in your opinion, makes it so special that? prop style bait that you use to actually target these fish when you're you know trying to elicit a strike from them and what other types of baits do you like to use around those bluegill beds you know why prop bait is so key around a bluegill bed um you know these bluegill make a smacking noise a lot of times when they come up um i think it's just something that gets this bass's a bass's attention when he's up there he's sitting there i've, I've studied them a lot of times sitting there on these bluegill beds and they'll be Another is literally just be sitting there like a like a log. I mean, one in practice, I saw one that was over six pounds, and I I make a cast. I thought it was a log, and it started coming over toward my top bait. I'm like, oh my gosh! But they just literally just sit there and stalk and, and watch, and they're they're really studying how these bluegill are moving. You know, a prop bait doesn't move very fast. It has a lot of commotion, uh, and, and it really just needs the strike zone really well. And so if that bass is sitting on that bed and he's looking for bluegill, one of them to eat, and he sees this thing scooting across the water but not moving really fast, it's very vulnerable. And those fish really, uh, they definitely like that prop bait for a whole lot. But, you know, some of those fish on Lanier actually would not eat that prop bait. They were really skittish. They've seen a whole bunch of prop baits over, going hmm. over their head. Um, right. And I had to make transitions. I, I threw several prop baits during the tournament. Um, you know, I started off with bluegill colored to- top waters and, and, and prop baits that were more the size of the bluegill that I was actually, um, that the bass were targeting. And then I actually transitioned between a, a Rapala X-Rap prop, and it was a little, little bit elongated, a um, little bit different look, and I caught a couple really good fish on day two on that bait. Um, so it was just making those transitions. Uh, along with those fish that wouldn't eat that prop bait and got accustomed to seeing it, what would happen is I'd have two other backup baits. With those fish were shallower than two feet of water, three foot of water up shallow, um, I would have a, a Trigger X flutter worm, which is sort of like a, a, a Cinco type bait, a wacky style. I would be able to skip that um, across the water and just get it right in front of them, those fish, and a lot of times they would eat that. Now, another bait um, besides the flutter worm that really played a huge role was uh, actually a shaky head, just a standby shaky head, old standby, eight ounce weight with just a spade tail worm on it. Um, and those fish that were in that five, six foot of water sitting down there a little bit deeper stocking those beds, they wouldn't want to come up and eat that top water. It took too long for that flutter worm to fall down to them. They want something right in front of their face and was sitting on the bottom and it was just wiggling a little bit. And that way, you know, that was a very big key. Um, a lot of times with those fish that would not eat that top bait or that flutter worm. It sounds like a lot of finesse comes into effect. It's kind of a power finesse, if you, if you might say. Um, that's great information. You know, when we're talking about some of these bluegill beds and we're talking about fish that are keying on certain aspects or conditions of a particular lake, you know, I heard you call one of your larger fish off of a dock that, that you called a resident fish. Can you explain what you're looking for when you find a resident fish and your tactics also that you generally employ to entice? to strike from them totally resident fish in my opinion are fish that live in an area it might be a hundred yard stretch it might be you know he, he lives there that's where he lives at i found one particular resident fish on uh, in pre-practice this fish lived on a community dock actually on a um, a marina dock a boat dealership dock they have boat dealerships on the water down there on Lanier. it was new to me i was like wow but i went up to this boat dealership to get get a sandwich one day and, and I look down there in pre-practice, and I see this bass, and there's about, mm, there's probably 20, 30 bluegill there. And he's about a five-pounder. He's sitting there just, just, just minding his own business, sitting next to these bluegill. He's waiting for someone to come by and drop some more food to him, it sounds Show like. him a sandwich, <laughs> man. <laughs> he was waiting. That's exactly what it was. But believe it or not, I go up to this boat dealership, and I, and I talk to one of, the, one of the guys up there, and he says, yeah, he lives here. He's lived here the last month and a half. And I said, huh? He says, yeah. I said, Really? So that really intrigued me. I was thinking, wow, this fish would probably stay here for the whole tournament. If I need one big one, I might be able to slide down here and, and, and catch this fish. And, and believe it or not, in the tournament, third day, I, I run down to this area, I pull into this pocket, and this one little slip and, and actually hook this fish. It's like a five-and-a-half, six-pounder. Did end up losing this fish, but um, it, was, it was unbelievable to realize that, that that fish, he lived there. He lived there from 15 days, 20 days before you know, the tournament started. I knew that that fish was there, and he stayed there. So, you know, a lot of it, those fish, those resident fish, they're accustomed to seeing a lot of different baits, to answer your question. They're used to seeing a lot of different baits. So showing them something more of a finesse tactic, that fish actually bit a shaky head. And, and while I hooked this fish, the, actually the guys in, in the boat dealership coming out, and they're cheering, yelling, screaming, 
hollering. They're like, oh, my That's goodness, he's caught, he's caught Big Ed. He's got Big Ed. <laughs> and, and this fish actually got within, I'm talking, inches of the net and come up and jumped and spit my shaky head. And trust me, it was, it was disappointing. But um, you have to understand that there's probably not going to be a lot more fish that are going to move into, your, into that area. And, and so you, when you burn it one day, you're probably not going to catch another fish there. And you have to have multiple places that are like that. You know, In the spring, we have, when I say resident fish, a lot of times it's normally the term used in the summertime, I feel like. In the spring, there's fish moving in and out. You catch these fish up shallow. Um, they're getting ready to spawn or they're actually post-spawn and they're starting to move, move back out to the main lake. Um, where they're going to spend the rest of their summer for the most part. And I feel like in the summer, some of these fish live in these coves and these pockets, and they live there. Some of those fish don't ever move out. And, and so they stay there, stay shallow, and they just live there. And so when you hear the term resin fish, that's normally what I'm talking about. Well, that's good advice. You know, we hear that term a lot, and people ask me, it's like, well, what the heck, are you checking his ID or what? And it's just it's one of those <laughs> things, like you explained, you know. You've, you've almost, it's, it's kind of when you know you're living right and you get that information. I pulled up to docks before, and people have said, man, there's a lot of fish underneath here that, you know, that you're not going to catch and they've got them you know assigned names and stuff like that so anyway <laughs> yeah. that's that's a lot of help well you know i hate to bring up that you're from indiana because i know you got kind of burned <laughs> on the on the football team here lately but uh oh yeah with uh peyton heading a different direction but who knows maybe maybe it'll go well for you and you know the, the great thing about the state of indiana that I, I think a lot of people don't realize is you guys had one of the largest federations in part of BASS, and, and I mean, it's just amazing the amount of anglers that are up in that area, but yet, when you look at the water compared to, let's say, Alabama or Florida or, you know, your traditional more bass-heavy states, you know, you guys are growing up fishing, what, Patoka and Monroe and things like that, and what I want to know is what made you successful while fishing Indiana waters that you've been able to kind of exploit while fishing other waters all over the country? Because comparatively, there's just not a lot of water there. No, there, there definitely isn't. There's about four main lakes in Indiana, and you better know them well. But, you know, truthfully, I mean, I'm going to tell you the truth. I did not spend that much time on Monroe and Patoka when I was younger. I spent time on the lakes that, um, that had quite a few fish on them, in them. You know, 2,000-acre lakes. Um, here close, even up to, you know, down to 500-acre lake. So these are lakes uh, that, you know, you probably have a lot of guys that are maybe in their belly boat or walking the bank or just, you know, out well, these are, these are These are lakes that, I mean, they get a lot of pressure still. You still have, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, you know, night tournaments on them. But they're smaller lakes that have a lot more fish in them. Monroe and Patoka are great fisheries. And, and at a certain time of the year, you can really catch those fish. But I really had a tendency to, to leave those lakes alone. I didn't feel like... I was learning that much fishing those lakes. I felt like I was learning so much more fishing the lakes that had more fish in them because you learn when you get bit. You learn the techniques. You understand things. And, and when you go to those tough lakes, when I had to go to Monroe to fish a, a big tournament, a BFL or Patoka, I, I knew I knew the technique so well fishing these other lakes that had multiple fish in them and a lot. I get a lot of bites that I knew that I was doing it the right way. I was making the right presentation. I was, you know, really a swim bait the right way. If they just if they weren't biting it, it just they weren't biting it. Jacob, you know, huge wealth of information you brought there with as far as fishing in Indiana. One of the keys that I think you brought out of a lot of the discussion there was the critical thing that helped you was going to lakes where you were able to get a lot of bites, and that's where you learned a lot. You know, that's particularly one of the reasons why I moved to Lake Amistad was because it's a lake where you can get a lot of bites and learn a lot of things. You learn a lot of different taxes, and that sounds like it's what served you well in being in Indiana and utilizing those types of fisheries to your advantage. Definitely. Um, you know, never committing just to one technique was a really, really big thing. Trying to be well-educated on every little technique and knowing how to catch fish on, on every little bait. Um, never committing to anything. And just, obviously, I have my favorite baits, but definitely being able and confident to, to be able to throw any particular bait out there and catch a bass was huge and being able to go out and pick up any bait and fish those conditions. Jacob, talking about, you know, your favorite techniques and these different things that you've you've come to, you know, have such great knowledge with over, over your, your short fishing career, but obviously become very astute with, with lots of different things. Interestingly enough, you know, we're in September and things are moving into fall fishing patterns and they're going to be developing over the next few weeks. What are the key ingredients and, and some of the key baits that you look to use to locate fish and especially in their transitions from their summer haunts into their fall feeding frenzy? Where, where are you going to try and dial us in? Because all of us want to know exactly where to go catch that next bass. Fall is one of my favorite times to fish, and, and the transition is one of the best times to go fishing at times. But, you know, this time of year, obviously, they, they get on that bait. They get on the shad, and, and they start the shad start migrating into these creeks. And so I really 
um, in that transition, I really focused a lot on the mouth of the creeks, um, you know, throwing top waters. I'm still throwing finesse tactics like a shaky head or a drop right. shot, but I'm definitely going to be throwing probably a top water with mixed in with maybe some cranking and some uh, um, some finesse tactics. And just stay towards the mouth of those creeks because those fish, more fish are going to be moving in to those mouth of those creeks every day. Great advice there, Jacob. Hey, before we let you uh, get out of here, uh, we have a listener question, actually, all the way from Andrew in Columbia, Kentucky. And what Andrew wants to know, he states, I fish a highland lake. I'm on it every week and having a hard time finding largemouth bass of size. The man that keeps beating me is fishing the same creek as I am, so I know that they are there. We have only four hours, so I need a bait that will get the bigger fish, but not too slow. Cranking hasn't worked, but they will take a worm, but not a Carolina rig. The fish are around 25 to 35 feet deep, and the water is somewhat clear. I need your help. Again, that is from Andrew in Columbia, Kentucky. Set him on his way, Jacob. Uh, you know what I would do, Andrew, is um, if you know an area is, is really producing a lot of fish, and there's a lot of fish in that area, it's, it's all about time on the water. Um, a few baits that I would definitely key in on, especially in that water depth, would, uh, would definitely be a drop shot, number one. Um, you know, drop shotting a probe worm or something similar to that with those fish. Um, or we either visually see them on your graph or, or see them um, pitching around those points. It's always a good tactic in one of those fish or in that 25 to 35 foot depth. Uh, I definitely feel like that's important. But, you know, for those bigger fish, try to throw a swim bait. Um, I throw a lot of wild eye, storm wild eye uh, swim shads, a great bait, a five inch. Um, let that bait go to the bottom and slow roll that swim bait um, through those areas. But, you know, last but not least, I would target um, and really try to in, get in depth on that creek. If you know there's a lot of fish in that creek, you know that the tournaments are being won out of there, I would get to trying to find the specific areas, the key little sweet spots on all the points. Being able to have a rotation is very, very important. So maybe having a where you know where that one stump is on that point. Get your line up to where you know where those three rocks are on that little flat. And being able to rotate uh, through those um, in a tournament can really, can really, you know, pay dividends. Hey, that's great info for Andrew Jacob. I want to thank you again for sitting down with us. It's been a great time just hanging out and chatting about some fishing. <laughs> but uh, next up, we have a pretty cool situation as we talk to an angler that used some different tactics that worked really well on the same body of water. Stay tuned. And Jacob, thanks again for being with us. At Legend Boats, we have one agenda, to build the finest bass boat on the water. It's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and zero-tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211 with its massive fishing platform. The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value all its own. Legend Boats, catch the wave, ride with a legend. Now you can order Bass Edge Season 3 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing as host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Denny Brower, Boyd Duckett, Randy Howell, and Dave Wolak. This two-disc set includes all 13 episodes. That's over 10 hours of Bass Edge, including interviews, bloopers, and highlights, all for just $19.95. Order online at BassEdge.com. And be sure to check out previously released DVDs like Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 and Electronics 101. Bass Edge Season 3, now on DVD at BassEdge.com. This is Jonathan Van Dam, and you're listening to Bass Edge. Great information there from Jacob, fishing up in the river, taking that shallow water technique. You know what, Aaron? I grew up fishing the Potomac River. All I did was ever fish shallow, and, and that's what I enjoyed most because that's what I was keen to fishing while on the Potomac River. But since I moved to Lake Amistad quite a few years back, I've been able to bring into that deep water fishing aspects and really learn a lot about that over the last five or six years. You being from the Ozarks, I know you used to be a shallow water guy too, but how has your transition been to fishing those deep, clear lakes like Bull Shoals, Table Rock? It's been a grind, Kurt, and you hit the nail on the head. I grew up much like you, but uh, quite honestly, coming down into that White River chain of lakes or any of the highland reservoirs that has that deep, clear water, if you do not know how to go out and fish deep, structure fish, drop shot, use your electronics, you are not going to catch near as many fish, and if you're a competitor like I am, was, you're just donating money. So, really, my situation was forced. I mean, you have to, to be able to do that to compete and to continually evolve as an angler, and hence, that's 
really the reason why we came out with the uh, Deep Fishing Electronics DVD 101 that we have. But um, I think deep fishing, drop shotting, that type of thing, structure fishing does have its time and place. If the fish are in on the banks like they are during the spawn in the springtime of the year, or, uh, you know, we're quickly approaching that fall feeding frenzy, chances are that's not the time that you want to be setting out deep fishing. Not that there's not still deep fish out there, but I question, you know, the size. I think the fish out deep are less pressured, and I think the numbers are greater. But if you're going for the size, that's something that you're probably going to want to move in a little bit shallower for the right conditions. But when the fishing's tough, five keepers, they go a long way in some of these tournaments. Oh, you're not kidding. And the biggest key to it is every time I go fishing, I want to catch fish. No matter what the fish are doing, if if I've got to go shallow or deep or whatever it is, I think the size is a little bit better on the shallow side. But when you got to go deep to catch fish, you got to go deep to catch fish. And you can still have the potential to catch a few big ones out there, but it's definitely going to be more of a numbers game. Well, and I'm seeing a common theme on this episode that we're talking about. This tournament in particular, the FLW Cup, was essentially one that the scuttlebutt was out there, Doc Talk was out there, based upon 2010 results, everybody caught him deep. We just heard from Jacob, obviously, he didn't do that. He kind of bucked the trend, went out, kind of did his own thing, and he came back $500,000 richer. Our next guest, however, Scott Canterbury, who we now have on the line, he's one that kind of did a little bit of both. Combined the two, and guess what? He has $100,000 more in his bank account than what he did when he started. Well, Scott definitely fished that tournament the best of any angler while fishing out deep. Let's see what he's got to say about it. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the Powerful is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, Powerful deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, Powerful won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Powerful, swift, silent, secure. Visit Powerpole.com. Find a dealer near you. Under the lily pads in a lake near you, live bass happy and free until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Tobbins offers three full lines of tournament-winning rods, the Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Tobbins Rods. When fishing is more than a hobby. This is 2012 Forest Wood Cup winner Jacob Wheeler, and you're tuned in to Bass Edge Radio. As we've been discussing thus far on today's episode, there are multiple patterns on a given body of water happening simultaneously. Here to prove the point is Scott Canterbury, Forest Wood Cup runner-up on Lake Lanier. Welcome back to The Edge, Scott. I appreciate it. We are so glad to have you, and I, I realize that being the bridesmaid in any event is probably not your ideal finish. However, it is a great accomplishment. You know, you were fishing kind of that mid-lake to south end of Lanier, and, you know, really what I would kind of like to dive off into is how were you able to establish these areas as your go-to locations? I tell you, I practiced the whole lake. I practiced up the rivers. The only place that I did not practice was up the Chattahoochee where the tournament was actually won. I went up the Chesapeake River a good bit and spent some time up there, and I did fish up that way a little bit the first day of the tournament, but that was the only time I went up there. And from the rest of my fishing all over the whole lake, you know, mid-lake, down, the further I got down toward the dam on that lower end, the more fish that I would see on my graph in the brush piles, suspended around the brush piles, or just out on long running points and stuff. You know, the more fish I seen, the more fish I could catch. So that's pretty much how I went about it. I mean, I practiced the whole lake and just went to where I thought the best numbers of fish were at. And then, you know, I caught some bigger fish down that way also, which helped me decide where I was going to fish. Now, Scott, is it true that you actually started up the river the first morning of competition day? Is that correct? It is. It is correct. I went up the Chesapeake. I didn't go right. up to Chattahoochee. I went up the Chesapeake the first morning. I caught a lemon up there, ended up weighing in. I think I probably only weighed in one of them, but it was a three-pounder. I never went back up the river anymore. I would have liked to have, but, you know, you just got to put more time in where your quality was at and, 
you know, I could go up there and catch fish, but I ended up spending the rest of my time on the lower end of the lake. It's probably a great decision. Maybe not in this particular event. Obviously, finish the bridesmaid, but Lanier is known as probably one of the best, if not the best, spotted bass fishing lake in the U.S. And obviously, it's got a good population of largemouth too. So you consciously made that decision to target the spotted bass, even after maybe you know the first morning, thinking there might be a largemouth deal going up in the river. You mentioned you're catching bigger fish and you're seeing more fish on your graph why is it that you decided to ultimately just totally focus 100 percent on the spotted bass and is it because you had the opportunity more to just catch more fish down in that lower end or what really made that final decision for you to just totally 100 percent concentrate down that lower end well i, I did spend my time on that lower end but i didn't 100 percent fish for spotted bass on the lower end i mean i did fish for large mouse down on the lower end also I just okay. wanted to be close where I could run out and fish for spots for an hour or two, and if it wasn't happening, I could run and go fish for largemouth a little bit. I didn't want to have to run 40 minutes up a river and then want to run back down and fish another place for spots later on in the day if it's not working. Going into the tournament, I spent all of my pre-practice, 100% of it, fishing for spotted bass. The research I've done and everything that I did, that lake is known for the spotted bass. Sure. But this year, everybody that won a tournament over there was weighing in a few largemouth. They might have a mixed bag. And that's how I thought the tournament would be won, was somebody would catch mainly spots, but weigh in one or two largemouths a day. And I weighed in at least one every day and two most days. So it worked out really good for me. But you was right, being the bridesmaid is not where you want to finish. But <laughs> if there's any tournament that you want to finish second in, this is the one to do it in. Yeah, and to me, that sounds like a great strategy based on your research. And you had some areas where it was still down lake that you could attempt to, you know, catch some of the largemouth probably up shallow, you know, haunting some of those bluegill beds or docks and those other kinds of structures but still you put yourself in a great position to catch some of those quality spotted bass that you were seeing on your graph and and that you had caught in pre-practice so you know no fault to you there man you you had a great tournament obviously i was really blessed with it i mean i was happy you know and i weighed in some giant magnum spots and you know one big largemouth the third day i had about a five and a half pound largemouth but i was really pleased with the tournament well you did great and just being out recreationally fishing you know sometimes you know we've all seen it how those black or those largemouth can really be a difference maker when you've got a, a couple of those to add to your bag with the spotted bass or with the smallmouth. And, and really, Scott, you know, almost as a follow-up to Kurt's question, what are the differences in fishing for largemouth versus spotted bass? In other words, what are you looking for and how does that approach differ? My difference was the depth range that I was fishing. And you know, there was a few people in the tournament that caught a largemouth or two out deep in some brush piles. But I never caught a largemouth out deep. I primarily focused for spotted bass. All of my big spots, I mean, I weighed in some giants. And every one of them came out of 28 to about 34 foot deep. I never caught a largemouth out there. When I was looking for largemouth, I was on the bank in less than four foot of water most of the time, fishing around docks. And there was a bunch of bluegills in there. I only seen a few bluegill beds. I missed out on that for a little bit. But there was bluegill all over around the docks, suspended in the shade. And that's the fish that I was targeting, the ones that were largemouths that were up there eating the bluegill. You would occasionally catch a spot up shallow, but I never caught a largemouth out deep. Well, does the, right. the, the spots and where they were holding, obviously it sounds like the depth range played a huge role in that. What about, was there a certain bottom composition or drop-offs or anything like that that caused those spots to be concentrated where you were targeting? Well, I was fishing long running points and there was a couple of I guess you would call them ditches that I found and it was natural like gullies that it came in like little ditches maybe when the light was down 20 feet and it had a you know, creek channel had washed through or something but mostly I was fishing you know that depth range but it had to have brush on it and I mean that lake's full of brush all those guys over there must sink brush pretty regular because there was brush <laughs> everywhere on the lake and I had so many waypoints that I could run new spots every day that I hadn't fished Wow, and I had a lot of confidence confidence doing that but i didn't have enough in that 30 32 to 34 foot depth range and that's where all of my big ones came was that depth range well scott mentioned catching a lot of those big spotted bass and and uh man those are some of the hardest fighting fish that one can put on their line i know that smallmouth is right there too but man the spotted bass and you being from alabama you've got a lot of experience with those spots down there too but you know you brought into the mix something a little bit different to your technique in this tournament a lot of us know about drop shotting but you brought something a little bit different I've played with it a little bit, but I've never been able to develop it into a successful tournament pattern. You brought out the double 
drop shot rig and was highly effective with it, allowing you to come behind from other anglers and actually catch fish that they were not catching. Explain a little bit your rigging and why you think it was such a difference maker in, in this particular event. You know, that's for funny you ask that, but I went in there to the tournament. I went over to the pre-practice, and I was catching a few fish that you could see suspended. I wanted more than one bite. I wanted multiple bites down there to see right. what lure that they would choose, that they preferred to eat is why I did started the double shot shot. I had no intentions of using it during the tournament. <laughs> I just rigged one up and dropped it down, you know, and I'd catch one on the top bait, a cross-tail shad I usually ran on the top. And then I'd catch one on the bottom bait, and I had different baits on. I had a flick shake, hand-poured powered white bait worm, or, you know, different, different baits I varied with on the bottom. But I would catch two or three on the top one, and I'd catch one on the bottom one. Well, I thought that, you know, it might be that they like the top one the best, so I put a big five-foot leader on my drop shot, and I would do it, and I just wouldn't catch them. So I don't know if it was the fact that the fish were suspended, and when they when you had dropped your bait, you could watch them on the graph. You could watch the fish follow your bait up and down. You could watch your right. bait and watch the fish. Well, if that worm went by them, which I ran on the bottom one, I had a half-ounce weight on the bottom on my double drop shot rig to make it fall a little bit faster with two baits. But if that worm went by them and they were following it, Maybe, you know, three and a half feet behind it was that little cross-tail shed like a little manna. If it came by their head, a lot of times they would hit it on their initial fall. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or if sure. it was just something that they wasn't seeing. You know, they wasn't used to seeing two baits right there together, and they would eat one of them. I did that a lot the whole tournament, and it really paid off. I mean, it made a big difference in the number of bites I would get each day, but that was my setup. I'd use a half-ounce drop shot weight on the bottom, and then about 12 inches up, I guess, I would put a straight shank hook on where I could Texas rig a worm on, which would be weedless. And then about three and a half feet up from there, I would put just a nose hook on where I could just put my cross tail shad maybe four feet up you know but that worm would go straight down in the brush Texas rigged and you could work it out if that little nose hook ever went in the brush and you didn't have it covered up you know you a lot of times you'd get hung so I would try to keep it right on top of the brush right, right outside right. of it and a lot of those fish that were suspended around it ate the top bait instead of the one in the bottom and then vice versa so a lot of times you'd catch one on the bottom one and you had another one up on top it just increased my odds I thought over there at that light. You were really targeting bass that were not only relating in the brush, but also those that were just kind of relating, maybe holding on above it or on the outskirts with two totally different baits. Definitely, definitely. And that was my approach to each brush pile. I had them pinpointed. I had each brush pile pinpointed on a GPS, and I would stop, you know, 20, 25 feet short of it and pitch in front of the boat working my way to the brush pile. And some of the fish I caught were not in the brush, but they were around it, you know, and those were easy to land. But when you hook one of those big ones in in that brush or right above it, he can get you in it in a hurry. Game you know, on, he's pretty blessed. Yeah, those fish are strong. We're used to catching them in Alabama spots, but there's a big difference in catching one on a flipping stick with 17-pound line than there is catching one on a spinning rod with six and eight-pound line. Heck yeah, you went to a fight and didn't have the right weapon. That's right, but it worked out good. And uh, I landed every fish and kept going into the last day. I did. I had one get me in the brush and, you know, that I didn't land, but it was a good tournament. It was a good week over and all. Yeah, it's obviously a very effective technique. I think it's a lot of times anglers don't realize, people that fish all the time, you know, we see a lot of things on our graph and we see a lot of fish on the graph and we can, you know, really detect the bait dropping down into the brush or around the brush or whatever it is that we're fishing. And you can be around a lot of fish, but just because you're around them doesn't mean you're getting bit. And it sounds to me like you really just kind of dropped into a, a great new, highly effective technique that that we might see a lot more here in the future i know it's nothing new and a lot of people have used it before but i really think this is the first time that we've seen someone come out and say you know what i caught them pretty good utilizing this particular technique and it's something that i think you're going to see more people tie up when they launch their boat definitely i had a double during practice but i never got one during the tournament you know that just increases your odds too when a lot of times you hook a fish your co-owner pitches in you know right where you hook them because you fire up two or three and they'll bite but this way if you do hook one you got to another bait down there for another one to get. You know, I didn't get one like that during the tournament, but still, it was something that they wasn't used to seeing, and it sure did help, you know, increase the odds of catching them. And I really had a lot of confidence in a worm that I was using, the flick shake worm. It's a Japanese color. It's called Tsunami. And I had three of them left going into the last day, and I probably didn't make eight drops that last day till I ran out of that worm. Uh. And I couldn't get any more during the week, but, uh, you know, I only had... Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I'm not usually big on colors. I mean, I 
usually stick to the basic green pumpkin, watermelon, or maybe a red bug or something. But this worm really, really paid dividends in the tournament. And I think that it made a big difference, you know. A lot of fishing is confidence, and I had a lot of confidence in that bait for sure. Well, Scott, you know, as anglers, and I think part of the draw to our sport is when we launch the boat, it's really our job to kind of sort through the various patterns that are working, you know, given the current conditions. Obviously, you just talked about, you know, and pardon the pun, like Kurt said, how you just kind of dropped into and and kind of stumbled across through your openness and experimentation uh, during practice. But is that kind of your normal rule of thumb of how you narrow your focus and ultimately, you know, discover what to tie on and where to fish in just a short amount of time? Or do you have some other, you know, method to your madness that you're looking for that's preparing you to put you, you know, in that contention at the end of the day? Well, generally speaking, I'm a shallow water fisherman. I love fishing shallow water. That's what I grew up doing. And I feel comfortable fishing shallow water. But a lot of tournaments, when you do research on them, you have a feeling that the tournament's going to be one deep. So if I think a tournament's going to be one deep, you know, I spend my practice deep. And if it doesn't happen, I can go shallow and scramble. I mean, I love fishing new water and just scrambling and, you know, going on instinct. I don't have to go find fish shallow to make myself fish shallow. I've got enough confidence just to go fishing and look at what conditions are given to me every day, and I can usually make something happen shallow. So I spend a lot of my practice out deep looking for that sweet spot or that honey hole that you could win a tournament on. Going fishing shallow is just natural to me, and, you know, I just scramble and fish shallow. If a tournament's going to be one shallow, you know, if it's springtime and, or even in the fall, I like fishing shallow. You know, I'll spend my whole practice shallow. But going into a tournament, it's just all about doing the right research and knowing what to do and then fishing your strengths for sure and what you have confidence in. Sounds like, you know, just to break that down even a little bit more, you know, for our listeners, when you come up to a specific piece of cover, you know, you talk about going up shallow and just fishing on your instincts. Um, you're talking about, you know, if you see a log, you'll throw a square bill behind it, make sure it deflects or, or uh, you know, pitch a jig up next to it where maybe the log actually touches the bottom of the lake, you know, and, and utilize some of your experience and techniques that you've learned over the years of your fishing and, and that at some point you read about and you learned, but you're approaching it as each piece of cover or each situation comes to you, then you apply whatever techniques you think is particularly best until you actually get on something that day. And then, boom, it doesn't take you a whole lot of time. You're able to find those fish and find a pattern in a real short amount of time that then you can explore over the remainder of the day. Is that correct? That is correct. You have to take every dock and break it down. You know, if you get a bite on the dock, was it on the end pole? Was it on the corner? Was he way up under in the shade, you know, and how deep he was? And then you can explore that all over the lake, you know, in different areas. And you have to break everything down, like you're saying, for sure. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, Scott, you know, we're, we're kind of moving into fall. You know, September, universally considered probably one of the toughest months to catch bass. You know, a lot of times you can get on some schooling fish and, and some fish that are starting to chase bait, but they're not really just there yet because they're coming out of the dog days of summer and a lot of, you know, like you were talking about, some of those deep fish, the uh, fall turnover starting to approach. So I'm really curious of how you're going to approach the month of September. September as we move forward. Well, you brought up schooling fish, and that's one thing that I start looking for in September. Usually, mid to late September, it really, really picks up around the areas that I'm from down in the south and Alabama and stuff. But it's it's odd to me, but my technique in September is I like, even when it's hot, I really like fishing shallow. I mean, everybody's got their own techniques. And I'll check some of the summer hangouts, some of the certain areas where I've caught them. But when I get down to confidence, I'm going to go super shallow, you know. I'm saying less than three or four foot of water the oxygen levels good uh, shallow late summer like that and that's the turnover is happening They're, they lose oxygen out deep and they start going shallow and bottle those fish or just be super shallow and you know i've caught some really big large mouth and some big spots super shallow you know I, I mean a lot of these fish are come out of two foot or less this time of year because the oxygen level is so good up shallow, and it's, you know, depleting out deep, and that's what the turnover is all about. You know, there's a lot of shad moving up. You know, they're starting to move back in the creeks, and if you can find that bait, what area of the creek that that bait is in, you know, a lot of times you can find some big schooling fish. And if I can't find any schooling fish, and even if I do, I'll check them once or twice during the day, but I'm still going to spend the majority of my day with a jig or a square bill or even some sort of top water in my hand fishing real, real shallow and looking for quality bites. You're not looking for quantity. That's you know, doing shallow, you're not looking for quantity, you're looking for quality that time of year. And that's what my confidence is, and that's what I do in September. Well, you know, speaking of confidence, 
a lot of anglers that are in the sport understand the mental grind. You know, not every day is a day where you're going out and loading a boat. And, and one of the books that we reference a lot and part of the Bass Edge team is Dr. Jay McNamara with The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. You know, how do you really minimize your mental meltdowns and stay focused and, and kind of in the zone while you're on the water, Scott? I'll tell you, it took me a long time to get to the point that I'm at. A lot of fishing and a lot of fish losses, break-offs. And that's where people have those mental meltdowns is you break off a fish. And, you know, I learned my lesson in smaller tournaments and stuff, but break off a fish on a dock and you're so mad about it that you're having that meltdown. You're just, you're internally, you're melting down. You get to the next (laughs) dock and a fish bites and you don't use your natural hook set, you know, you sort of let up a little bit. Because you just yeah. broke one off, and you'll stick one this time, and it's a five pounder. He comes out and jumps and comes off because you didn't jerk. So, I mean, I just take every fish as it comes. You're not going to land them all. There's no way. Nobody is, and nobody ever will. You just got to keep 100% focused. I fish every day. I mean, just about every day when I'm at home, I fish. That's the biggest thing you got to do is stay focused on what you're doing, and you know, just stay strong. Give 100% of effort. You do your best with every bite you get. And you'll definitely come out on top. I mean, you just have to stay focused. Don't get mad about the one you break off or the one you lose because you're not going to catch them all anyhow. Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more, Scott. It's so critical. You just, you know, if something happens, you deal with it right then immediately. You know, you can't drag it on, like you said, to the next dock or, or to the next point or to the, to the next cast, for that matter. You've got to deal with it, get over it, and move on to the next one. And, you know, certainly there's things to learn by everything that happens, wh- whether you break the one off at the dock or, or you lose one that jumped off on a crankbait or, or whatever the fact is. We, we, you, you never want to, uh, take it for granted of why something happened and don't worry about it as much as not think about what you could have done differently to to have a more positive outcome but certainly you can't carry it with you to the next cast so i think those are great no you can't you have to let it go for sure the only thing that i consider that you can do different is when we break a fish off i mean it's never the fish's fault and just about ever I mean, there's not a fish that I'm going to hook in the lake that's going to break my line if I do everything right. Yeah. Did I retie in the last hour? Did I nick my line? Did I retie? You know, a fish can get you in brush or around the rock or something and cut you or break you, but a fish just being in open water is not going to break your line. And you just have to let it go when it happens. I mean, like you're saying, you, you can't think about it any longer. You got like a 10 second rule. You don't have a 24 yeah. hour rule. You got a 10 second rule. You got to let it go. Yeah. Win, lose, or draw. I mean, you got to let exactly. it go. Well, hypothetically speaking, uh, win, lose, or draw, if you've got one rod and reel combo to take to uh, your favorite river or favorite pond or, or wherever it is you like to fish and maybe just get away for a few hours on a weekend, you know, you're not doing the big tournament, you're just trying to have some fun, maybe taking a kid fishing, what is the one rod and reel combo and the tackle organizer you're going to take with your five choices of baits? And that's a tough question. Um, if I'm going to go fishing to a pond or walk the banks or take somebody fishing, I'm going to have a shorter rod in my hand, you know, maybe a six and a half or a seven foot, probably a seven foot medium heavy, something that I feel real comfortable with and can make good, accurate cast with. Those longer rods are great for handling fish, but you're not as accurate with a long rod as you are a little bit shorter. A lot of people go down to a six and a half. I like a seven foot rod. That's what I would take with me. Seven foot, medium heavy. You know, I like setting the hook on fish and I like being able to handle them. So I like a medium heavy action rod. Now baits, if you had five baits, I mean, that's all I ever use in a tournament just about. So <laughs> you know, right. I would definitely, I would definitely have a jig with me because that's my favorite bait. You know, I would have. A top water bait. I'd have probably two top water baits. I'd have a buzz bait because I mean I love fishing a buzz bait, right, and then right. I'd probably have a, a walking bait such as a popper. So that you're down to two more choices. I'd have a square right. bill with me for okay. covering water, and if it was really really tough fishing, I'd have to break out the shaky head with a worm right. on it. I can go with those choices. How absolutely, absolutely. I think every listener needs to heed that advice because uh, Scott, I hate to tell you, but I just created a tackle box while you were reading that off in my list of what I'm going to th- <laughs> going to throw in the boat. But hey, unfortunately, uh, we're kind of running low on time. But BassTackleDepot.com listener question: We need your help, Andrew from Columbia, Kentucky. And this was a question we posed to Jacob Wheeler a little earlier. But Andrew wants to know. He says, "I fish a Highland Lake. I'm on it every week, and I'm having a hard time." finding largemouth bass of size. The man that keeps beating me is fishing the same creek as I am, so I know that the bass are there. We have only four hours, so I need a bait that will get the bigger fish, but not be too slow. Cranking hasn't worked, but they will take a worm, but not a Carolina rig. The fish are around 25 to 35 deep, and the water is somewhat clear, but I need your help. Again, that's from Andrew in Columbia, Kentucky. 
Well, you're not catching them on a crankbait if the fish are that deep, more than likely, because you're not getting your crankbait to the fish. It's hard to get a crankbait 25 to 35 foot deep. So, you know, a lot of people just started longlining and stuff. That's something that you could try, but it takes a lot of time. But my confidence baits would be like a football jig. I mean, you know, a jig usually gets bigger bites than a worm. If you can get them to bite it, that would be a big deal. You know, maybe stroking a jig or crawling it on the bottom through the brush. One of those two techniques ought to work and maybe a big flutter spoon. That would be my choices if I was going to that lake and was wanting to fish that water column. That's what I would start with instead of the worm. That's great advice, Scott. Hopefully that sets Andrew on his way, and uh, he can maybe quit taking a beating from that guy. <laughs> <where> he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think but, he's uh, out on top. Yeah, exactly. As a result of uh, Andrew's question being chosen and answered on the air, he is going to receive a $25 gift card to BassTackleDepot.com. Congratulations, Andrew. And to you, Scott, thanks for your time and we appreciate you being here with us and good luck in your events to come thank you and i appreciate y'all with the message absolutely scott hey don't go anywhere as we will be right back after the break to answer another listener question and offer closing thoughts you're listening to bass edge radio you know the importance of protecting your investments so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Why did they consistently win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Jean LaRue, Jackalure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need. It's no wonder Bass Tackle Depot is where the pros shop. Wow, what a great interview from Scott, which kind of leads us into our final listener question that will be awarded a BassTackleDepot.com $25 gift card. And this one, I think, really relates to a lot of us. You know, given the vegetation control and a lot of the invasive species that you see and kind of the overtaking of a lot of lakes, what is happening is, you know, a lot of the, your private lakes are trying to get that under control. Ellis from Farmville, Virginia has a question pertaining to this and he states my home lake is approximately 800 acres it used to have quite a bit of vegetation now depleted by carp the lake is full of quality bass it has a lot of pressure and after the hydrilla was wiped out the fishing has gotten very tough most fishermen that do very well fish offshore points humps roadbeds the lake is very consistent in the summer for big bass what tactics do you suggest and again that is from Ellis in Farmville, Virginia. Kurt, take it away, buddy. Well, Ellis, I tell you what, being from Virginia, I know what you're talking about. I've seen some of these lakes go through this process before where they've had a lot of grass and then it's been wiped out. I think the fish always move to the hardest cover available, whether you've got uh, standing timber, laydowns, rocks, any kind of uh, significant structure in the lake like ledges or drop-offs as well. Those fish are going to move really from the grass and specifically relate to those places. So the first thing I can suggest that you do, Ellis, is get yourself a great graph. You know, it's probably not something you used a whole lot in the past, um, fishing around the grass, because you could see a lot of it visually, and it was much easier to detect as far as just cruising down the banks or kind of hitting the edge um, that you could see with your eyes. But now you're really going to have to utilize those electronics and, and really kind of do some research that, like Aaron was talking about earlier, you know, in fishing bull shoals, and he's getting ready for an event later on this year and doing a a lot of down scanning and structure scanning and that's what the first thing i would suggest you do for this particular incident that you're talking about here look on these points for rocks and any kind of little ledges or depth changes is what i'm talking about when i when i mean a ledge and and these road beds the hard spots now the specific tactics that i like to use in this situation if you're going to fish slow in the summertime carolina rig and texas rig are probably your two biggest techniques that are going to have success you can 
elicit some reaction strikes from some deep crankbaits. Again, one of the biggest keys on crankbait fishing is deflecting off something. So if you're fishing in, you know, eight to 10 feet, make sure you've got a crankbait that'll run, you know, about 12 feet deep. So to make sure you keep some bottom contact. When you start to get in that fall transition and into the winter and early spring, even next year, a great bait to use that is often overlooked is a football jig. And dragging the football jig around the points, humps, and other things that you're going to find with your graph is going to be critical to having good success. Ellis, I think that you're exactly right. The fish is still loaded with big bass, and uh, they're out there to catch. You're just going to have to adjust your techniques and your style of fishing a little bit from grass fishing more that hard cover structure fishing. Well, good stuff. And the only thing I think that I would add, Ellison, of course, you would need to check the uh, regulations there at the body of water that you're talking about. But if they allow you to create your own structure, man, what an opportunity with the grass being gone. Get out there and sink some brush piles and and create some rock piles and do some different things like that. uh, And you'll be amazed at how that will draw the fish in create that sense of security, creates ambush point for their forage. I think that opens up a whole new level to your fishing. Yeah, that Aaron, that also opens a whole new level of work <laughs> to your fishing. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but can also be very rewarding as well. Ellis, thanks so much for sending in your question. And listeners, don't forget to send in your listener questions to info at BassEdge.com or post that question on Facebook for a chance to hear it here on the show. And your chance to win a $25 gift card to be used however you decide. Aaron, you've got a little something special to talk about Keelguard. What, what's the news here? I do. We've been, uh, you know, we've been leading, kind of teasing this for the last uh, couple months here. Uh, it is officially live. The only thing I will tell you, there's four prizes being given away. The grand prize is over $500 worth. Uh, it's a complete MegaWare Keelguard protection package. And then got a second, a third, and a fourth place. For the details on that, got to get on Bass Edge Facebook. We've got it posted up there. We bought it specifically specifically off of Keelguard's Facebook page. Get on there. Check out that graphic. You might have to scroll down one or two to get the most current, but that actually went live right there at the end of August. So be sure and get involved in that. Awesome. That's great stuff. Thanks for Keelguard for being a part of Bass Edge. I want to remind all the listeners about rating us on iTunes. And when you get on iTunes, there's a little section there where you can rate the program. Please let us know what you think. We'd always like to hear feedback from the listeners. Also, remember to like Bass Edge on Facebook. You know, Aaron, we need to remind listeners to get 15% off their next Bass Tackle Depot purchase by entering the promo code BE, that's like Bass Edge, BE Special. It will save a bundle of cash on their entire purchase of tackle. Well, good stuff, Kurt. I can't think of a better way to close the show than saving money. It's been real. It's been fun. Once again, we are a wrap for the September 2012 episode number 147 here on The Edge. For Kurt Dove, I am Aaron Martin. And for next time, we'll see you right here on The Edge. The Edge is presented by Kill Guard Kill Protector. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit www.bassedge.com. And be sure to join Kurt Dove and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Legend Boats, BassTackleDepot.com, PowerPole, Dobbins Rods, Mercury Outboards, and Rapaholic.com.